Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 31. We're going to be joining you every week to talk IT career, news, and opinions based on our points of view. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing well. Just finished a large cup of coffee to get juiced up for this episode. And I just want to make sure everybody knows we are both VMware solution engineers looking to bring you the career advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. We hope our career discussions will be relevant across disciplines and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Awesome. As always, it's uh, good to get back into the uh, swing of podcasting. Um, I think that this week's topic, we kind of wanted to build on what we were talking about last week. Last week, we in episode 30, we talked about adapting to a new team. Uh, this time around, we wanted to take kind of like one of the things that might happen when you're moving on. Um, maybe you're moving within the organization. Maybe you move to a new job. A lot of times what happens is you're moving up. Um, that's a, one of the, the reasons that we actually started this podcast is to encourage people to move up and scale and to search for better employers. Um, sometimes we're stuck in dead end positions. Um, and, you know, part of what we're doing is trying to get people to get out, get out of those situations. Well, um, when you're doing that, a lot of times you're moving to a bigger organization, um, more complexity. So uh, we're going to call this scaling for the new endeavor. Yes, sir. Now, when you're moving on up, are you moving to the east side or because you finally got a piece of the pie or no? Get that, get that deluxe apartment. That's that's part of it. Yeah, there you go. Now, let's let's take a... Let's take a scenario here, John. As you said, let's suppose that you do go and join a large organization. So there are going to be some differences in what your past experience was as to what your future state is going to be. Suppose you worked for a small company on a team of four people in the IT department, and now you're on a team of 40. That's a pretty big difference. Yeah, definitely a big difference. Or maybe you had a few remote offices to support, maybe a couple, but now you have 20. Or 30. Yeah, that, that could be a different, bigger change. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe two data centers to, let's say, 10. Mm -hmm. 50 users to 5,000. That's, that's a pretty big change. And we're going to talk about the, you know, the intellectual and emotional challenges that you might face when, when making these kinds of changes, because you, you do have to do some things a little bit differently to scale up. And it, and it may be the case where you were the jack of all trades at your previous company, but you were hired at this new company for some kind of specialty. You know, maybe you dabbled in everything, but you really liked and excelled in virtualization or cloud disaster recovery, something like that. And that's, that's what you want to be your focus area. And even in that specialty, it's, it's still pretty broad and, you know how it is, John. At smaller companies, they just don't have the number of physicians to open up and offer people because there may not need to be that many separate roles just because of the company size. You may work yourself up to the highest skilled individual contributor and not really have anywhere to go. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Definitely. I was definitely a jack of all trades uh, in, in an SMB. 
So uh, I'm very, very familiar with that, uh, that situation. Um, let's maybe talk about structure. Um, you mentioned the intellectual and technical challenges of joining like a larger organization. Um, so let's cover that. And then we'll cover maybe emotional challenges of uh, doing that. And then how do, how do you move past those challenges? How do you conquer them? Um, and uh, in, in those three points, uh, hopefully will help uh, in, in any one of those situations, right? You don't even need to be changing. Um, maybe you could be moving into a larger role right, uh, in, within an existing organization. It could be, you know, you're in this little uh, small pond and then you, and then you move to like a, a larger pond inside the same organization. So any one of those things can happen. Intellectual, technical challenges, emotional challenges, and then how do you help? How do we uh, give you some advice to, to move past them? Sure. So if we start with those intellectual and technical challenges, probably the level of knowledge is going to be close to the same, but the scale is different. Think about it like we had a web server or two. Now we have a web server farm. Could be globally distributed with with load balancers and you know each site has to connect to a certain set of servers in a certain geographic location for the latency to be as low as possible. You have to handle disaster recovery for on a per location basis, maybe, as opposed to just the application itself. So a lot of redundancy there that you're going to have to juggle. And these line of business applications, John, if you're talking about a massive company, you know that could be hundreds upon hundreds of servers to support that, or even thousands, to support that line of business application. Because it's not just the database and the front end. You may have a workflow engine, a, an intelligence engine, all kinds of other add-on products when you're talking about these modularized systems that companies use. And even in addition to that, a large number of applications that you're probably going to have to support for different uh, business units within the company, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, it's one or the other, right? Even in, in SMB, you know, a lot of times you're using some kind of enterprise resource planning uh, or centralized application. Imagine that at scale, right, for a company that's 10 or 100 times the, the size and scale, number of users, revenue that it's handling. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot more complex processes sometimes, you know, more modules um, just because of the scale of the organizations. And then sometimes it's just, you know, these organizations maybe they don't have a centralized application maybe it's it's distributed applications that all somehow need to pass data back and forth so um yeah handling slas and disaster recovery for you know 10x 100x the number of applications um you know also a big thing and then maybe even like doing internal software development maybe that's when you're an smb you know uh, writing software for individual business units is is not something that's done that often. Um, it's definitely done a little bit more often when you get to the enterprise or, or just larger scale, right? So all those things. Yeah, and there's things that you can do ahead of time. I I, I think that we've talked to people, and you know, pretty common you know piece of advice that we have is always, you know, when you're in your smaller position, think about what it is that you're doing and how you would scale it up. What if the organization that you're working for had to scale up like 10x or 100x? You know, have you set up that infrastructure? Again, maybe just taking the web server example, have you set it up to, you know, be able to modularly add, you know, additional web servers uh, with, uh, you know, um, being able to plug load balancers in ahead of time? 
Um, what if you had to be globally distributed and need a global load balancer? I, a lot of times, you know, um, just that thought process of, hey, what if we acquired a company that was our size and we had to, you know, scale? What if we had to do this? What if we had to, you know, suddenly we had a super popular product and we had to scale 10x or 100x, you know, what would we do in that situation? That thought um, experiment leads to, you know, an exposure of gaps that we have within our small organization or our internal knowledge that, you know, we would need to need to handle, you know, great, I have a small front end load balancer, but you know, how do I handle 10x the traffic 100x 1000x? How do I do that in a distributed you know, globally load balance manner, you know, it's a, it's just a completely different scale. And sometimes, you know, because we haven't been asked to handle those things in the past, you know, we haven't investigated them. So we have maybe kind of a bookmark in our brain of like, oh yeah, this is where I'd go and check on that. Well, if you are thinking about moving up and, you know, it's become a goal of yours after, you know, listening to some of our advice in the past and, and maybe changing what it is that you're doing and who you're working for. Well, it's time to investigate, you know, some of those uh, bookmarks to, to, to get ahead of the game. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, in an environment like this, you're probably going to have some sort of patching schedule that needs to be done every so often. And it's maybe different based on the different applications. And, you know, I just hope for everybody listening that if you do move to a large organization like this, that you have a very nice, lovely test environment that you can use because I know in the smaller shops, those are hard to come by. Sometimes we <laughs> use part of our production environment as a test environment because it's required to do that. But or it's really old hardware that may not work so great. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's a, a fact of living in SMB, right? Is um, some of the formal uh, divisions of infrastructure and formal test and formal you know, user acceptance testing and, and staging environments that are taken for granted in enterprise, you know, that's not a formalized process within a smaller business. So, you know, just thinking about how you, you would even implement that, right, is, is sometimes, uh, you know, something that would just benefit. What if, what if I had to create a test plan, you know, and, and demonstrate something, you know, a change had passed. So um, what about the larger teams? Nick? I mean, that's, that's a big deal, right? Sure. If you're joining a larger team, I would see this as an opportunity for more collaboration. You're probably not going to be the sole owner of any one uh, implementation and or project. There's going to be somebody else who's either helping from a intellectual development level or an implementation level, especially if things are at a massive scale. So, you know, think of different IT organizations that have a full team for network or storage or cloud, dev, backup. That's that's a far cry from the team of two to five and has to be handled differently. How do those teams interact and do they work well together? Is there some overlap in skills so that we have those adjacencies and some human redundancy within the organization. And with all this collaboration, you know, multiple people working on the same project, hopefully there's some kind of change management in place that the smaller shop may not have. Could be multiple approval processes, which could take larger amounts of time than you might have had to wait in the small shop to get something new out of the gate. 
it, it seems like as the number of people who have to touch and approve something for it to go through increase, the time to market seems to increase as well. You know, what, what are the swim lanes? What can each person do? What can they not do? Uh, I think you run into some more red tape in the larger organizations. What's your experience? Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely experienced all those things. And I I think, you know, you kind of gave a a good rundown of the things that you need to look out for. And so, you know, the first piece of advice that we probably have is to take those things into account. It's one of the things that you're investigating about the new organization that you're joining. Um, What are these things? You know, um, what are the processes? You know, what are the things that I don't know, the the landmines? that I don't want to trip over. You know, somebody somewhere has this information. So, you know, you want to make sure that you uh, don't make all the same mistakes that have been made already. You want to make brand new mistakes, right? Um, I I think that, you know, once you have the beginnings of that map in your mind, and and maybe you even want to write it down, you need to, or or maybe while you're um, taking those things into account, you, you need to not get frustrated by by some of the changes that come from a small organization to a large organization. There's guardrails, there's change management. They're, they're all there for a reason. And the reason is, you know, without those things, mistakes were made in the past, you know, that brought things down and, and cost the, the company money, you know, downtime equaling money. And, and, and all of those things, you know, you know, somebody had this idea like, Hey, we need to not, not have that happen again. And, and here's this level of, uh, of process management, change management, you know, organizational management that needs to be put in place to avoid it. Um, you know, and, and it's because, you know, larger organizations, they have to think about risk differently than smaller organizations. A lot of times, small organizations have the ability to be nimble, to take risk to break things and, and downtime doesn't cost that much, you know, because the things that you're breaking aren't, you know, that severe. If, if the, if the two accountants, you know, who work for the organization have to take lunch 30 minutes early and while you fix their accounting application, that's not that big a deal. You know, if people need to go home, you know, 45 minutes early, um, while you fix something, not that big a deal. When you're, when you're dealing with hundreds and thousands of people, you know, those same mistakes are costing a whole lot of money. So, you know, those larger organizations, again, are, are, t- are thinking about risk differently. The costs of downtime service interruptions are, are at a different scale. And, and yeah, that does slow things down and that can be frustrating. But um, again, hopefully you have, you know, multiple environments, a, a test environment, a development environment that you can, you know, do those things, uh, make those changes, demonstrate and, and get some, uh, you know, formalized user acceptance testing. Um, so you can promote, uh, you know, on whatever schedule needs to be uh, followed by that organization. You know, it, it's funny, I say all those things, Nick, and uh, I was just thinking, actually, as the organizations get even larger, when they get to web scale, they think about risk even differently than than ri- just risk avoidance. Like if you think about like the the site reliability engineer methodology for like a that grew out of Google, I think. Um, and we'll we'll try to include a link to the the SRE uh, handbook. Um, I think they there's an open version of that. Um, they th- start thinking about things about risk and service level availability like even more formally. Um, and there's ideas that that start 
uh, seeping into organizations like error budgets and opportunity cost of not making changes um, that uh, that really should, you know, hopefully start filtering down into enterprise, you know, a little bit faster than, than it has uh, filtered down, right? Like, um, for example, when you're when you put guardrails in to make sure that you're not going to cause an outage, um, the things that you're slowing down might co be costing the organization money by not being implemented, right? Then, and that's opportunity cost. Okay, so you know we had a faster, you know, reducing time to market of, of critical new features um, is you know a, a big deal for some organizations. So um, sometimes. Um, what I've uh, found in these larger organizations, if you have an error budget and you're not hitting it, that means that you're being too conservative, right? So if you're below your error budget, then that means that you're not going fast enough, right? You're not you're not breaking things enough, and you could have been pushing things forward much much faster. I, I don't know if you've run into that kind of thinking yet, Nick, um, but uh, have you? Uh, heard about this like idea and this methodology so i've never heard the term error budget but i do remember a previous spice world where tom lemoncelli the author of the practice of network and system administration as well as time management for system administrators was speaking to us and he said if a process or procedure seems risky do it often which when you think about it it sounds a little bit counterintuitive at first but if you're doing things that seem risky really often, you're going to get really good at doing them. And that's how these large organizations got good at releasing code so fast, so quickly, because they broke stuff. But they broke it, as you said, in an acceptable manner. And it also reminds me of this upgrade of a particular ERP system that Tom Delicati and I did a while back. And, you know, we, we set the precedent with management that, hey, you know, there are going to be things that go wrong, but with our upgrade, we're going to meet these requirements at a minimum and be able to transact these things to, to continue to run the business. And these other items will be lower priority, but it will allow us to get this done, you know, way faster than we would have otherwise. We're not going to plan for a year. We're going to plan for a few weeks or a month and tested a couple of times and we're going to go for it. But, mm. but they were okay with having that stuff break. Right. But they knew that we were going to get the important things online as quickly as possible to meet their requirements. And it was fine, you know, and we, right. we got better at the upgrade process and we were able to do it and apply our patches more frequently to get those newer features and functionality instead of waiting. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, again, you know, those things are much easier to do in a small business, you know, or even medium-sized business, much harder to do in an enterprise. And then um, once, the, you know, you step up to web scale when, you're, when you have a, a different methodology and, you know, a different organizational structure, you know, you, you realize that in order to progress it at, you know, the speed of, like, you know, uh, of a web scale company or, you know, software as a service company, you know, maybe that you're competing with, you know, you have to break things, you know, on, a, you have to break things more, or at least you have to be, uh, take more risks and, and accept more downtime. And, and that has to be negotiated with the application owner, with the service owner. And then again, if you're not actually hitting those error budgets, like, you know, then that means you're not actually 
being aggressive enough. And uh, it's just a very different mindset that, that I've started to run into that's, uh, I think it's, you know, well, it's clearly the next evolution. It just hasn't, I think, soaked into the enterprise as much. And I think it would, I think it would be very difficult at those large-scale companies to be the person who makes the call on how often we're going to be okay with breaking things and determining what the error budget is. That's a, that's a challenge that I'm sure is met with a lot of pressure on the person in the role. Sure. Yeah. And I think that it also goes along with a different style of application uh, design, right? So you need to be able to say, well, I'm going to make this change, this aggressive change, but I'm only going to make it for 1% of the users. Um, that that are that are hitting this this individual feature, right? So um, you know, I think the the classic example is Netflix, right? And when you're going to the search bar and Netflix and typing something in, maybe somebody made a change to the to the way you know the search feature works. Well, you know, they don't necessarily want to roll it out to the entire user base all at once. So they you know unit test it for you know just this one small thing for one percent, and then. If it goes well, 5%. And then if it goes well, 10%, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have to design your application to not be a monolith. So, you know, this one change doesn't just bring down everything for everybody all at once. And then you have to be able to, uh, you know, roll out that test. And uh, I think the methodology, they, or the terminology is usually blue-green, right? So you have your um, your kind of, standard or, or, or stable code base and then and then the, the new code base and uh, you're rolling that out to, to a subset an ever increasing subset so yeah um, absolutely I just want to jump in real quick there is a really good podcast uh, a data knots episode 89 about what site reliability engineering is and what it means for IT operations with Rob Hirschfeld I, mm. I thought that was a pretty good one so we'll put that in the show notes so people can give it a listen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've definitely, oh geez, maybe it was the same episode that I listened to, but, uh, I think in the past, uh, two weeks, I listened to a podcast with a Google, um, SRE who had actually moved to like customer, uh, reliability engineering. So they were rolling out this practice where they were, um, helping their customers, like the downstream customers, um, get into the SRE methodology. And uh, um, I'll, we'll try to find that and put it in the show notes. But anyway, I, I think uh, maybe I'm derailing things and and uh, we should move on to the emotional challenges, right? You, Absolutely. There's, there's a bunch of those that, that you can face when you move into a larger organization um, from a smaller one. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's not just about being smart and knowing what to do. There are emotions that go along with it. You know, if you are someone who joined, came from a small team and joined a very large organization, a large team, you might get the small fish in a big pond feeling. I know it was kind of like that for me when I first joined VMware, you know, working on small teams and then, okay, I'm on a team of eight to 12 people who do what I do. And uh, the organization has thousands upon thousands of people. So you, you might have this general feeling of discomfort. Like, this is not what I'm used to. It's not comfortable. That's not necessarily a bad feeling. It obviously helps you grow, but that discomfort's going to be there. And sometimes that can really rattle people. Mm. You know, even though you're going to be doing things that are 
they're somewhat familiar, right? From a technical standpoint, there's still going to be things that are new, new processes to learn that, as you said earlier, were put in place because of the size of the organization and to make sure we minimize our errors, errors, <laughs> excuse me. And there may be political barriers that you have to come across and break through that maybe weren't there before because of the size of the organization. And I think it, it also goes back to this innate fear that there are higher stakes. Just like we said a minute ago, if something goes down, it it can affect a lot more dollars and a lot more people when it does go down. And if I'm the person who makes the change that caused that, am I going to get fired automatically? You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to touch that. Right, John? That's right. scary. Yeah, definitely scary. It's it's that scale and the the blast radius of a mistake, right? Absolutely. Don't don't be that guy or gal. And you know, a lot of times we get imposter syndrome. We we talked about that in a previous episode, but I think it it rings true a lot of the time when you're making a change such as this, you you might just not have the confidence because number 1, you may not have done the things you're being asked to do before a lot of the time you're just not going to be confident because you, you haven't done it or, and you may be afraid that you're going to fail. But of course we can't let fear or lack of confidence keep us from reaching our full potential. And it's, it's something that people have to deal with and, and we'll talk about some ways you can do that here in a second, but anything to add there, John, with the emotional challenges? Yeah, I, I think that, um, recognizing them ahead of time, right. That, that it's going to happen, right? Not being so arrogant as to think like, hey, I'm going to walk into this, it's going to be a challenging situation, and I'm going to have zero emotional effects, right? Uh, I'm never going to feel uncomfortable, right? That, that's, that's just not the case. The whole idea of moving to a large organization and facing challenges is that they are challenging, right? So just having that idea going in uh, just needs to just needs to be part of it. Right, so that you you know that this is going to happen, right? It should happen. So you're telling me I have to be realistic about this, John? Come on. <laughs> it's uncomfortable to uh, to think that. Yeah, it really agreed. is. <laughs> so all these challenges that we've talked about, uh, it'd probably be good for us to talk about how to overcome them. Yeah, definitely. It's because, I mean, as part of the John White School of Mentoring Curricula. We want to help you overcome challenges. And if you're out there and you're getting too emotional about this new change and this new scale, send that tweet out to Ad Nerd Journey for pricing and packaging today. We'll get you some of John's time so that you can push past the challenges. But hey, product <laughs> placement over, getting past these intellectual and technical challenges, you, you have to understand that you got the job. You, you did the yeah. work. You were the person that was selected the manager or managers felt like, okay, this person can do the job. That must mean you had the technical chops and the ability to learn or hopefully, right? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully yeah. you did, but like you, you either had the skills that they needed or they, they they said to themselves, Hey, this is somebody that we can train. Mm -hmm. And you know, a, a good organization would never expect you to walk in the door with, with everything that they needed. Right. It's, it's always about, you know, or should at least be about um, partially about your potential, not about, um, you know, what you had right away coming out the gate. Absolutely. And you have to train yourself to think at scale. 
it's it takes a little bit of time. You, you have some basics that you learned, maybe some basic concepts if we go back to the web server and building one, how it works, how it gets accessed, how it gets secured, where it lives, how it interacts with other systems. But doing that with a farm, with load balancers, with uh, you know intelligent routing, that might not be something you've done before. So you, you're going to have to take some time to learn it. As you said, maybe it's training from someone else on the team or a, a class you take. And, you know, a lot of products today have reference architectures. And these reference architectures are built so that you can look at something in its full scale or at least a greater scale than, you know, just a few users. It, it shows you the depth and breadth of, of how the technology can be run at a what we call enterprise scale. And I, I have to go back to episode 14 of the Explore VM podcast on making the move to the enterprise. I remember talking with Paul Woodward Jr. and, uh, and AJ Kuftik about this. You know, how do you scale your thinking and your abilities to get to that enterprise level? And I think they did a really good job having a discussion in that episode. Yeah. You know, uh, an idea for a future episode would be to have both of them on um, to our our podcast and and maybe do like a, a follow up, right? Because I, I yeah. feel like having going back and like listened to that episode recently, um, I felt like oh wow, they did like a really good part one or introduction, and there's all these different follow ups that that can happen that we could uh, maybe talk to them about. You know, just that enterprise scale for um, um, for anybody's uh, career journey, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I really liked what you said about reference architectures. One thing that I've been doing, you know, obviously we both work for VMware. So my real world um, experience with this is going and looking at the VMware validated designs. And I've been reading through those, um, you know, for my customers and, and some of the, the next generation architectures that they're investigating. And one of the, you know, the fascinating things is the level of documentation that goes into those designs and those architectures. And when you read those things, you start to understand the thinking of the people who wrote them, right? And, and when you start to understand how they think and how they approach problem solving and architecture design, then you start to think that way. Um, you know, another resource would be to go, um, again, that I kind of, uh, my real world is to investigate the, the VMware certified design expert and their design methodology, right? Their architectural methodology, you know, what, what are the customer goals? Um, what are the constraints that the customer faces? Um, as a result, what are, you know, as you're moving forward, um, when you make assumptions about things, can you document those just to make sure, right? Um, and then decision points, and when you made a decision, document why you made the decision um, and how it refers back to what the customer goals were. Um, so, you know, and then, you know, maybe some what if scenarios. If, you know, we're designing it this way, you know, one of the things that the customer said is like, well, we expect growth in 30%. Well, if this design had to grow to accommodate 30% growth, what what is the direction that it would need to go uh, in in order to handle that? Is it just, you know, simple vertical scale? Is it horizontal scale? You know, all of those things that um, that happen, you need to, to just think about ahead of time, document while you're doing your designs and, and refer back to those things, right? So just that level of thinking 
by starting to read reference architectures, you know, uh, really good ones and starting to investigate, you know, design methodologies by really good architects, uh, it just changes your outlook and, and how you uh, look at architectural, uh, IT architecture, technology architecture. And it's absolutely enthralling bedtime reading too, right? <laughs> I, I actually find it enthralling. Like uh, maybe that's not the, the right way to talk about it. It's, it's not, um, you, you know, when you're trying to solve a problem or trying to understand a design and why somebody or why a design is the way it is, um, you just have to dig into it. And then eventually some of the, some of the times you have to go to the people who wrote it and go, well, listen, why is it this way and not the other way? Right. And part of their level of training is to say, um, is, you know, theoretically to document why they did things one way and not the other way. And, and sometimes, you know, there's just something there that, that you don't understand and it's how you learn. Right. So, you know, getting access to those uh, reference architectures, usually um, vendors publish them and then they have all the contact information about the people who wrote that documentation or the, the, the team that's, you know, in charge of, um, of answering questions about it. Right. So, um, and that's, you know, doing that is how you learn. Right. You learn from people that are better than you. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> or do. Have more experience. And it, it really lets you think a little bit more because there may be other systems or applications at work in this larger ecosystem blueprint that your implementation is just a small part of that you hadn't considered before, you know, from an interoperability standpoint that will help you grow and learn. And, and next time you'll know. Yeah, I think AJ had some like, really interesting things to say in that Explorer VM podcast. He's like, well, you know, one of the things that you need to take into account is when you implement things a certain way is what about the people that this is impacting? Um, you know, if you're designing your network architecture in a certain way, how long is it going to take for the network implementation people to like make changes as you need changes made? Like, is it going to strain their resources? Um, the people that are going to be... Uh, operating this thing how much training are they going to need to operate it you know just things like that that you need to take into account when you're doing design and thinking about systems you know again it's design scale and system scale like you know when you're in an smb it's like you can just like look at the person at the cube next to you and go hey i'm thinking about doing it this way you know how long is it going to take you to spin up on that and they're like ah, i can do that over a weekend well when you have like a team of like you know you know, 200 people, you can't do that anymore, right? It's somebody else's job and it's impacting, you know, a bunch of people, right? So um, all of those things need to be taken into account. And th that thinking at scale is just so important. I like it. Now, thinking at scale sometimes, John, could cause you to get emotional. How are you going to get past those emotional challenges? Got to go into that. Uh, and I think you have to tell yourself, again, you got the job, you deserve to be here. Mm -hmm. don't, don't feel like you don't deserve to be in your skin or in your shoes because you worked hard, you, you made it to there. Now, <laughs> you need to play to win and not play to lose. So, right, and I think that, I, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but it's just so important, like in, you know, your new job, search and methodology to not misrepresent yourself, 
right? Not overstate how much experience you have and your expertise level, because when, um, you, you never want to be hired for the wrong reasons, right? Because this is the worst case scenario about lying on your resume and lying about what it is that you can do is, is you get hired for the job and then people expect you to do what you said that you could do, right? If you represent yourself as being able to learn something quickly, then what they expect is for you is you to have an adjustment period and a spin up period, not a, Hey, we just, you know, you said you were fully able to do this and we just want you to do it within, you know, our framework. So we expect you to learn about our framework. So sorry, again, um, you know, when you're saying you got the job, you deserve to be here, you know, that we're presuming that you, you didn't lie about what you were able to do and, and, and misrepresent yourself. So, um, just an important, uh, preamble to that. Yes, sir. Fantastic. And I have to say that some of the content here came from a conversation that John and I had with one another. So I'll, I'll let you guess who said what, but some of the advice here, acknowledge that you are having these feelings. They're not wrong. They're not bad. They just are. And those are, that's something John told me. So it's, it, it makes sense, you know, very profound. And I thought people had to guess who said what. Ah, uh, Sorry. So I lost my train of thought, I guess. <laughs> well, hey, you know, um, spoiler alert, it's, you know, I, I knew to say that to you because somebody had to say it to me, <laughs> right? Um, we've both been in that situation of like, oh, geez, maybe I'm in over my head. Like, you know, I, I feel unsure of my footing and, and where I'm at and the level of risk that I've been exposed to, you know? Um, these are just natural feelings. I really... Um, I don't think I said it quite that way, uh, you know, that uh, the, they're not wrong, they're not bad, they just are. But uh, I think that's a really good way of echoing it back, maybe more succinct than I put it. And you can tell yourself, I know I'm okay, I just don't feel okay. Oh man, that's a really great way to put it, yeah. And, and at some point the convergence of being okay and feeling okay will happen, but it's, it's going to take some time. So you're going to feel that way for a little while and you, you have to just be all right with that and know that it yeah. will pass. Yeah. I really, so I really like this framing and it just reminds me of, um, I think something that we've, maybe you and I have talked about, I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, but the separation of like your intellectual reality and your emotional reality, right? So you can intellectually know that things are fine, that you're going to learn how to do things correctly and, and, and get there. But emotionally, you might be in a place where you just feel uncertain, you feel scared, you feel, uh, you know, out of sorts, you know, uncomfortable because you've, you know, maybe been the uh, big fish in the small pond for a long period of time, and and now you're in a bigger pond, right? Um, so those two, you know, things are are they can both exist at the same time, right? And you can know that you're okay and still feel not okay, and that convergence, you know, just as you said, it takes time. And how much time is it's going to be different based on the person? But, but you know, John, we're probably not the only two people who ever felt this way. Just like you said, somebody had to tell you so you could tell me. There are people who have gone through this type of transition. There are people who have felt this way and, and dealt with it. So it, it makes sense to try and talk to them about it. 
And I think part of the problem is we, we get embarrassed that we have this feeling because we, we feel like we, someone will think less of us because we're feeling this way or thinking this way and that it somehow makes us less of a human or less of an employee or less valuable in general. So it's, it's kind of difficult to go and ask somebody for help. If I had to say who you should ask, I would probably start with a, a trusted friend or peer. Even if it's someone who's outside of your technical purview, they could probably still give you some decent advice on this. Yeah, I think that's really good. And in fact, I would maybe say, you know, you need to talk to somebody outside of the organization that you're in, just because sometimes, you know, it's important, you know, to your coworkers sometimes that you project uh, confidence and and calm that you don't necessarily feel. So, uh, you know, if you have a really good, deep relationship, long-term relationship with your, your peers, sometimes it's okay in that situation to, to expose like, hey, I know that this is going to be okay. I just don't feel that way yet. And sometimes when you're new to an organization, it's not okay. I mean, it should be okay, but, you know, it just makes everybody else then uncomfortable with you because you feel uncomfortable and you're new, right? So in those situations, you know, where you don't know who you can trust with, you know, um, you know emotional conversations, uh, it's best to go back to people that you no, already know that you can trust with those conversations that are outside that organization so they don't filter back in um, to people that you don't know if you can have those conversations yet, right? You need to find that safe space. And, and I'll just say, if anybody out there is listening and needs a safe space, John and I would be happy to have a private call with you that's not recorded. You can tell us your hopes, dreams, emotions, and we'll at least listen. Because sometimes just having someone listen to you is really, really helpful. Yeah. I, I don't know how many times it's happened where I've like unloaded, you know, my, you know, um, uncertainty to somebody and then they echo it back to me and I go, oh yeah, that is what I'm saying. You know, like they have this outside perspective and, you know, they're not emotionally invested in, in a specific situation and they say back to me something that I've said, but, you know, more concise and, and or they you know point out that you know there's a dependency on something that i'm missing or um you know there's a you know i'm i'm stressing about something that i don't have any control over and missing things about the things you know things that i do have control over and uh you know it's you just have that's what happens when you get emotional about things and and what happens when you have people that you can go to that can point those things out Yes, sir. And if we could all think about situations in an emotionless way, it'd make things easier, wouldn't it? But then we'd be robots. Yeah, we'd be uh, less human. Definitely less human. Very cool. Uh, yeah. And, you know, again, I think we've talked in, in other episodes about, um, you know, professional networking uh, to, you know, have those outside people that, you know, are local to us and, and can talk us through those situations. Um, and, in uh, cultivating uh, mentor relationships. So, you know, you can have a person like that. Um, again, you know, theoretically, when you're new to an organization outside that organization, um, so you have that support. Man. And uh, and uh, I will, you know, double down on what Nick said. You know, if, if that's something that you need and you just don't have anybody around you, 
um, you know, we're, you know, I think either one of us would be happy to, uh, to take your call and, um, and talk you through, you know, you know, those things and, and maybe be that, uh, echo, you know, back to you of, of what your situation is and, and, uh, hopefully that's helpful. Well, Nick, I think that's it for that topic and uh, everything we had planned. Uh, anything pop into your mind while we were talking before we uh, close out? One more plug for the John White School of Mentoring. Don't forget, send that tweet to add Nerd Journey for pricing and packaging. But just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners. Uh, tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at V Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.